Hi, I'm Xander Wilson, and welcome to another episode of the Silver Bullet Podcast. This podcast is about lessons learned in running a business, with a strong focus on startup founders and CEOs. It's all about finding out what gaps these disruptors have identified in the market, what they're doing differently to their competitors, and of course, to find out their silver bullet for business success. This week, I'm chatting with Stephen Green. Stephen is the founder and CEO of SGC Media Group. In this episode, we chat about his career in the music industry to date, growth and acquisition, and why a focus on ROI above all else can actually be detrimental. Stephen Green, thanks so much for joining me on the Silver Bullet Podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, you've built SGC Media Group into, I guess, quite a beast over the years, but it's not the first company you've started, and this podcast is all about what it takes to start and build businesses. Can we start by going back a little far and talking about Australian music biz? What was the company, and can you chat about your experience of getting it up and running? Yeah, well, that was my um, first attempt at, uh, at running something. And uh, it, it kind of happened accidentally. I was working um, at a, uh, a record label, a very, very, very small one um, here in Brisbane at the time and, uh, and running a, a blog and a, uh, a newspaper column that was being published in some local newspapers at the time. Uh, and the, both the website and the, the newspaper columns were called Australian Music Biz. And uh, the company that I was working for uh, in a marketing role um, went bust and uh, they had taken some cash off uh, off some artists and bands and things to do their marketing. And uh, I had actually just left uni to take that position. Uh, and so I decided I'd go back and finish my journalism degree. But in, in the downtime, I think they went bust in August. And so it was a little bit late to go back for that semester. Um, so yeah, I got the, got the bands to give us 50 bucks each to give to my parents for the phone bill. Cause that was back when phone calls cost things. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so I just sort of did some, yeah, did some uh, PR for, for them just cause they had releases coming out and I felt bad and I had nothing better to do. Um, and because the, because Australian music biz was, was the name of the, um, the, that we'd already had for the website. I just registered that as a business so that I could invoice them. And it, it was never a grand plan to become a business owner. I, it just sort of happened. And then, uh, yeah, by the time it was time to go back to uni, we'd, we'd had a, a couple of little successes and, and people were calling going, hey, can you do my record? Can you do my record? And, yeah, I, I, I sort of I did end up going back to uni part-time. So for better or for worse, I do have a, a journalism degree. But, uh, <laughs> But yeah, the, um, the the business sort of went from strength to strength, and um, I I, well, I wouldn't say I, I did all of uh, I made all of my mistakes on that one because I'm still making them now. But um, but geez, I made a lot of them at that point. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and and I guess what what were the hardest things that that you found at that point, and and you know perhaps what what are some of the the early lessons that you learned that you've been able to take forward with you since. Um, I think probably the, the biggest one um, from from that business, um, I, I had it for about seven years before I, I on sold it to some staff. Um, but the, the the biggest thing was was probably just the the basic business knowledge and you know what it what it takes to run a business, what the um, you know it, it was it was all, all very well to know how to be a publicist, but actually knowing, 
what a P&L looks like and, um, you know, what it, what it means to, I mean, you know, I had my first staff members at that point. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to forget just what a huge learning curve it is to get your head around, uh, you know, what it is to, to pay staff, what it is to deal with tax departments, what a BAS statement is, all those, those boring things that you never expect to have to deal with um, when you think you're going to be a cool music publicist dealing with bands. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of felt, found that I loved that stuff as well, as, as, as strange as it, as it seems. And, uh, and I think, you know, my passion for kind of building things um, and, and, you know, working out how to take things, you know, in a, in a bigger direction, um, you know, probably equaled the, the passion for music in the end. And, and so I've sort of, you know, I, I just keep trying to figure out, okay, what's the next step and, and what's the next step. The other big thing at that, at that point as well, uh, and, and, you know, to some extent less now, but at the time trying to run a, you know, nationally focused music PR business out of Brisbane, um, it was, you know, it, it was sort of the, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, the most people were like, how can you do that out of Brisbane? It's, it's not possible. There's no music industry in Brisbane. Um, and you know, that was, that was the time, you know, pre big sound and pre, you know, Brisbane sort of making its mark on the, on the world. And, uh, so, yeah, that was probably something that, um, I think in, it was hard at the time, but in hindsight, it was really good because you kind of had to work twice as hard. Um, and, and we found, yeah, we found that, that we had more Sydney and Melbourne clients in the early days than we did Brisbane clients because, Brisbane bands still had the the cultural cringe of of you know thinking that if they were going to spend some money they wanted a, a big dog publicist in from from Sydney because that's where all the <laughs> all the big guys are um, yeah whereas you know people in Sydney and Melbourne had had less cultural cringe and just wanted to go with with you know people that they liked and that had runs on the board so that was probably the second thing that we had to contend with at at that time. Yeah, for sure. And and had you always planned to be in the music industry or did you fall into that as well? Uh, it was always the dream. I mean, I think I, I would always have said that I wanted to be in music. Um, I think, you know, my parents were probably, no, you need to get a, you need to make sure you get a real job. And, and so I did journalism, which hilariously, uh, <laughs> as, as the decades passed, um, I, I'm not sure which one of those jobs is less secure. <laughs> but um yeah, I, I think yeah, I was I was one of those weird kids that you know read Straight Press every every week and and collected the Aria chart from the record store and um, you know I, I yeah for some reason just always had a obsessive compulsive um, you know love for not just not just the music itself but for the statistics and the you know I always wanted to know like I worked in a record store when I was when I was in going through high school. And, you know, it would always fascinate me that you'd have a local band that had come in with um, with a local EP that they'd recorded and, and you'd kind of, you'd play it in, in the shop and and then, you know, you'd take that off and put on a Britney Spears record and it, w- it was always like a big mystery to me about, well, how come this, this great band is nowhere on the charts and how come this pop record is everywhere and we're selling 50 million copies of it. And I think it was just always a fascination yeah, obviously I love the music, but I also wanted to know the ins and outs of, of the psychology behind what what made one thing popular and what, what made another, you know, less popular, I guess. 
Yeah, absolutely. And in the years that followed that, you had you know a series of roles, including working with Big Sound, working with Q Music. What sort of experiences would you highlight that you think have sort of advised how you how you then went into and started up SGC Media Group? Yeah, well, I think you know the, the reason that I got rid of Australian Music Biz was um, apart from its its terrible name. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'd kind of hit a ceiling where we had you know probably three years there where you know we we had a small team of people we were doing okay but the the artists that we were working with were at around the same level um and we were having some successes but i just wasn't breaking through into getting to that next level of a band that wanted to work with us um and i i guess i just got bored um and then but once i got out of it um I, I took a role um, with Big Sound programming Big Sound for two years, uh, and that was at the time it was only a part time role. Um, so I also took a role launching um, Play MPE, the digital distribution service that um, labels and artists used to get their music to radio at the time. Um, we launched that into the Australian market, and um, as part of that, I, I, I got to you know to meet. Yeah, I had more interaction with major labels, more interaction with people. The the person that I was I was doing that launch with, um, Peter Skillman, was a, a you know stalwart of the industry that had been around for a long time. And I, I guess I, I there were a lot of people that had had watched what I was doing with Australian Music Biz, but that we'd never really connected. And and I think that's where I started to get a lot more mentors and and friends in the industry that were. Um, you know, I guess a lot older than me and were able to give me advice and, and open some doors. And, um, you know, I guess, I guess the, the, the big foggy mess that was the, the big bad commercial industry all of a sudden became less foggy. And, and I realized, oh, these are actually just human beings that, you know, <laughs> that, that are, are like everybody else. And, and it sort of really started to connect that, um, yeah, that, that, that industry network that, that I needed to, to proceed. Obviously, programming Big Sound was also a, a massive boost to contacts because, uh, you know, being able to you know, shoot off to Cannes for, for the Mid-M conference for a couple of years and, and meet a whole bunch of amazing people from around the world. I mean, that, that was a great experience, even just to, um, you know, to, to learn that, that the music industry and the world is, is bigger than just Sydney as well. And I think that certainly helped take some of the cultural cringe off being from Brisbane as well. All of a sudden, you know, when, when you're seeing the people you always, you know, that always scared the pants off you that were based in Sydney, you know, sitting in car and talking to, you know, to people in France and, and being the little guys in the room as well, you kind of get a, a good sense of perspective. And, uh, you know, I, I think, I came out of those two years. I mean, and obviously the, the Plain PE um, launch was really successful as well. And yeah, I came out of those couple of years with a little bit more confidence. And, um, you know, I, I guess at, at that point, um, Big Sound had a, had a two year rule. So you could, you could only program for two years and then you hand it on the baton. And um, after the, uh, after that second year, um, I got chatting to Sebastian Chase, who uh, is the founder of MGM Distribution, and uh, and we got chatting about what my next moves might be. 
and uh, decided to partner together to uh, form a new company that was at that point going to be focused on digital marketing. Um, and that was SGC Media. And um, so that was founded in 2010. And uh, yeah, it's it's been a, a very interesting up and down ride from you know a couple of years as as digital marketing. It was kind of around the, the time when um, you know blogs were were massive. You know, MySpace, Facebook, all of that kind of stuff was you know was, was popping off. And um, but still, you know, publicity. You know, a lot of a lot of the more traditional publicists was kind of stuck in the well. We do press. We don't do online media. Um, so there was a lot of, um, you know, a lot of need there for, for something that sort of connected the two things there were that, you know, a lot of those early campaigns, we were working with someone that was doing radio, someone that, that was doing press, and then we would do digital media. And then as time went on, I guess we kind of sort of crept out and, and realized that, well, you know, we were doing the radio and the press before as well and doing it very successfully. So yeah, integrating the the press and the radio and the and the online at, at the time, yeah, that was what was sort of needed. So we pivoted the business in in that direction, um, and then obviously, you know, social media and all of those sorts of things, you know, started to come um, after that as well. And uh, you know, I, I think the big changes in the music industry at the time, you know, were really impacting budgets as well. And the 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 days that you could say well, we'll hire a radio person, a press person, a digital person, a social person, a, you know, the, the, the budgets have not, the, the money from streaming has flowed back and labels now have lots of money, but, um, but that hasn't necessarily uh, trickled down to the individual projects. So, you know, the artists themselves and the campaigns for individual albums and, and things like that, um, they haven't necessarily, uh, well, I don't think they've ever been lower than they are now. So, um, you know, I think doing a lot with a little um, is is kind of where where that moved. Just on that piece around around getting in sort of really early in terms of the digital marketing aspect, I guess the first part of my question is, was the music industry sort of relatively with the times with that or, or, or were you sort of the first really getting in there and, and it was sort of a bit behind everything everyone else was doing? And then the second part is, do you think that part of the reason why those budgets started to to get lower was because you were really able to measure the impact of digital and there's been, you know, it's obviously so much chat over the years about moving away from print and the, the sort of the, the way it's hard to measure impact of marketing in radio and print and those more traditional mediums yeah i mean i think there's um i, I mean uh, yeah the, the whole the whole world's always on a on a trajectory of some you know of, of something and, and at the time that we were launching the business you know blogs were the buzzword it, it was all about hype machine and you know you you, you had you know, i mean a lot of the people whether you know it's dom alessio or yeah people that are now at um you know, Triple J and things like that. It was it was kind of a really great time for music media because kids were consuming music off these websites and, um, you know, MP, you know, sharing MP3s on sites illegally and all that stuff. Like that's cool. Everyone loved that. Um, but the music industry was still stuck a little bit in, um, you know, I we don't we don't have the internet or we don't use these things i mean in the same in the same way that you talk to people at tiktok now and they scratch their heads and go oh my god you know that, that's yeah that's a whole other thing um 
yeah, we'll be laughing about it and having this exact same conversation about that in three years' time. But um, you know, the 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 kind of the, the shine started coming off blogs as uh, as people, you know, particularly as streaming rose up. I think you know the idea that you were needing to run a website or a Tumblr or whatever to to tell everyone what your music taste is kind of started disappearing once you could just get a Spotify playlist. And I think, you know, the advent of Instagram and the rise of, of Facebook and, and other platforms, I think people, um, it, in the way that they used to use their musical taste as a badge of honour and, and their, you know, their blogs as, as a, a self-identity, I think the need for that sort of became less and less um, because you could express yourself through Instagram, you could express yourself with you know, if you really wanted to, to tell people what you were listening to, they can see because they're friends with you on Apple Music or they're, you know, there's, there's there's so many more ways to do it now that aren't here. Here's a long form rant about why I don't like this Justin Bieber album. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think, you know, there's the, the, there's a big difference between what music media online um, fulfills in people's lives today versus what it was doing 10 years ago and and that's the big um the big challenge for media and probably why i think a lot of um a lot of australian music media have kind of lost their way a bit and have been falling off i mean obviously covid was a ginormous hit to everything but um you know i i think to a large extent online australian music media never really evolved uh, i mean they are now but for a long time they were using street press uh kind of mentalities and putting them on a website you know we, we did we did music reviews and and put them on websites because that's what we always did we did you know gig reviews we had um you know long-form journalism all of those sorts of things um you know many of which are still relevant and, and important but the importance that we put on them was was based on where they sat when we had magazines rather than where they sit in a in a digital context and i think that's where things are changing a lot and i think the they were forced to to do that because everyone started looking at measurability and and what's your cpms and all of those questions and i think what has happened is that the industry swayed so far to the point of going well what's the return on investment how many banners did we get what were the sales everyone's actually forgotten that the that the reason that that music journalism and press was important in the first place is that you need somebody telling the story of the band and you need that conduit that's going to connect the punter with the emotional connection with that artist and we're at a point now where you can jump on new music friday and listen through the whole playlist. There's going to be songs that you like and songs that you don't, but you can get through the whole playlist without giving a shit about who the artist was or where they were from or why they wrote that song or music's becoming more and more of a commodity that you turn on like the gas, as opposed to being something that those emotional connections are built with. And, and that's where I think the industry has probably misread the room a little bit. Um, by by going down a pure consumption route and forgotten that that you actually need to build fascination and excitement and the way that you do that is through storytelling. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I guess one of the ways we sort of saw fans sort of take that back, I guess, especially pre-COVID was through, I guess, the increasing importance of of touring, you know, live touring became such an important part for for bands to, to make revenue alone, let alone connect with their fans. How hard has it been for the industry to, I guess, rebuild that in the post-COVID era where, you know, we're seeing articles all the time with, um, you know, people having to cancel their tours for so many different reasons, let alone, you know, climate-based stuff, you know, do, do, you, do you sort of see touring getting back to where it was? Oh, I think it's, uh, I think that the challenges are, are real and, um, but I think they're, they're sometimes different to what, um, to what people see. There, there are shows that are doing incredibly well. There are, there are festivals that are, that never sold out before that are selling out. And then there's festivals that everyone expects are going to sell out that don't. And I think one of the things that the industry is coming to grips with now is that, that everything shut down for three years or you know, two years, whatever it was. But, um, you know, everyone was expecting to come out of COVID and pick up where we all left off. And while the touring shut down, the music consumption didn't. And I think the, the bands that are now really popular or that, that people really want to see, the industry have kind of lost touch a little bit with, with who those bands are. And, um, you know, because you could always tell what a band was worth based on the heads that they pulled at the last, um, on their last tour. And they haven't had a tour for two or three years. So we've got no point of reference. And I think it is going to take at least a year or two for the, the jostling in the hierarchy of bands to, to, to sort of settle down and, and for the industry to go, okay, well, those are the bands that are doing really well now. Um, even album wise, you can, you can see there are, you know, there are big artists that were doing big numbers on streaming on their albums that were coming out just pre COVID. And now they're coming back with new albums now and, and they're not hitting a million streams. And it's because they haven't been able to consolidate that streaming success that they had through the touring, which is usually the way that you cement in those fan bases ready for the next album to come through. Um, so there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot going on, um, and I, you know the history will show that 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 venues opening back up and COVID restrictions easing was probably about the halfway point of the cycle that COVID will have yeah the, the, the havoc that COVID will have wreaked uh, wreaked on the industry I think, um, and and I think. You know, for, from an industrial perspective, uh, I mean, that's you know, for, for us as a business, that's what we've been through. We went into the pandemic as a PR company and we've emerged from the pandemic, pandemic as a media company. Um, you know, we, we, now, we now own, um, you know, four titles and, you know, including the music.com.au, which is, you know, a, a pretty large sized <laughs> music uh, website. And, Certainly, um, you know, part of our strategy was going, well, yeah, there were a lot of things that, that during COVID, I think, were failing because of COVID, not because the fundamentals of what they do for the industry or for society in general were flawed. Um, I mean, certainly there was, yeah, there were, there were a lot of things that, that I would be doing differently if I'd owned the publications previously, but the fundamentals of, of, 
music being important to people's lives and emotional connection being important to that and the storytelling being the root of all of that, that hasn't changed. And we took the, you know, the, the strategic choice to make sure that on the other side of it, there would be uh, outlets that would be able to tell those stories. And for a while there, it looks like, you know, even some of the others that have survived, um, you know, I, I know you you had Luke Gurgis on the podcast recently and he was saying, you know, that, that it was it was an existential threat for even the largest of, of music press. Um, and, you know, we just took the the call that if, if everything else was going to fall down around us, we would we would grab, um, you know, the, the opportunity while it was there, particularly for the music um, coming coming into it with the history of the street press that it represented previously, you know, drum media, impress, um, time off, uh, 3D world, where there is a whole lineage of music journalism there and, and a history um, that you know, frankly, had the opportunity to potentially be lost. Um, and, you know, I think history is just as important as as the future. Uh, and, you know, part of part of our strategy there was to make sure that, um, you know, that we can preserve and, you know, repurpose a lot of the stories that have come before as well and, and celebrate, um, you know, celebrate the history of, of what Australian music does. Because if we want to excite people about Australian music now, uh, then being able to show where the celebration of Australian music previously, that yeah, how important that's been to our culture is, is going to be a part of that as well. Yeah, and I was sort of going to, I was just going to touch on, I guess, the growth and acquisition strategy. You've sort of answered it already, but but what are the biggest challenges when you sort of go through those processes of approaching acquisitions and and what have you learned from, from the acquisitions you had previously, I guess, right up to, you know, obviously the purchase of the music itself more recently? Yeah, I think, I mean, the first the first thing that we grabbed was Purple Sneakers, which, um, which was, uh, you know, I'd love to sit here and say that we had this amazing strategy of, of, you know, building a media conglomerate and taking over the world. But legitimately every decision that we've made in this space has been about, uh, you know, what we think is best for music. And, um, you know, the Purple Sneakers acquisition happened because as a publicist we went, this is a brand that really means something for people. And in a world where a lot of those smaller blogs were all disappearing, it was one of the bigger brands that people did, you know, if, if Purple Sneakers said that you were great, it meant something. And we didn't want that to disappear. So the strategy wasn't we can resurrect this. The strategy was we want this to continue and we'll work out how it all works later. Um, and, and that's sort of, you know, the, the second, uh, the second thing that we, that we did was launch country town. Um, that was something that I'd kind of had in the back of my mind for a while, um, pre COVID because I couldn't work out how country music was such a big thing in Australia and yet had no media, um, you know, other than radio stations surrounding it. And, um, you know, when, when COVID hit, we, we sort of had, a bunch of PR staff that were looking after events that were no longer happening. And, you know, I kind of took the, took the opportunity to go, well, you know, 
nothing ventured, nothing gained. It, you know, COVID's obviously not a great thing, but if if the government want to pay half my wages bill, then let's do some crazy shit and and try <laughs> some things. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But you know, I, I mean, it was a really crazy time. And if you know, I I know a lot of businesses went the conservative route and you know, tried to hunker down. But but to me, I was like, there's never going to be a time in history where the government's paying half my wage bill ever again. Um, we're just going to double down and, and have a crack at these things. And the fact that we did have Country Town and Purple Sneakers, yeah, I'd never run a media outlet before. Um, we had nobody on staff that ever had, really, um, you know, from a commercial side of things. But... Um, but why not have a crack at it? And I think the lessons that we learned and the mistakes that we made on those sites where the stake, the stakes weren't quite so high uh, meant that when the music came along, uh, we still had lots of mistakes to make, but not as many as, as had we gone in completely cold. And, um, you know, the, yeah, both, you know, neither Country Town nor Purple Sneakers were making any money whatsoever or, you know, none of what we'd done on them suggested to me that we would be able to make the music work um, other than that my gut said that that there was value. And we did, um, you know, I wasn't stupid. We had budgets. We did, you know, we did some due diligence and looked at, at various scenarios, but it was an opportunity to back that hypothesis that storytelling in music is important and, you know, be able to go to market and, and find like-minded people in the industry and outside of the industry that wanted to help back it in. Um, and it's been a raging success. Uh, I mean, the, the, the numbers on, on the music uh, in terms of audience are, are triple what they were, uh, when we took it over, um, the the commercials on the business are, you know, the, the the top level of what I expected that we would be doing in the first year is below where we're currently at, um, and you know, and and we are finding that there are communities out there that want to re-engage with music, and we're in the box seat to be able to do that. I think having having purple sneakers dealing with electronic and, uh, you know, more youth-based hip-hop, that kind, those sort of genres, having Country Town doubling down on country and now we've got Curious Stereo for metal as well. Having those really passionate music communities, they're not necessarily, uh, you know, standalone, you know, commercially viable entities, but having those those passionate audiences that are, that are coming through and then, can interact with the music and and throughout the the yeah you know, the suite of titles, it, it it brings a real culture to what we're doing and and we want to be able to get that passion and fandom that was still there in country music in in hip hop in in metal, and get back to a time where that same passion it is it, passion is being held across the board with all music. We want to encourage people that love pop music to be as crazy as I was at age 12 collecting ARIA charts. And, you know, I don't actually care about what kind of music you're into, but 
if you can find the same passion in music that I found, then that's something that we as a business can do for you that is going to be infinitely important in your life. Um, and so that I think is the, is the thing that we hold at the base of, of, of everything that we're, that we're trying to do. And, and there is no question in my mind, music's going nowhere. So that strategy will always win. Yeah. And you sort of mentioned, uh, I guess fostering communities there and sort of like-minded people to sort of rebuild this. I, I just wanted to touch on on your culture within SGC Media Group itself as well, and and I guess you know what sorts of things you've done to foster a, a, a culture within your employees and and your hiring process and that, and that sort of thing as well. I think there'd be multiple people that would uh, that would come forward to say how terrible our culture has um, has has been in the past. Things that I've screwed up um i mean i think it, it, the same as any job i think the you know for some reason ceos or hr managers or whatever they're like everyone expects them to be infallible and unfortunately the problem with um you know being in this role is that when you make mistakes and screw up it actually impacts on on other people and you know some of the some of the things that i've learned over time um you know, uh, to sort of take seriously that 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 role of managing people is an important one. It's not just an aside that you do when you're not in there doing PR or doing the work or um, you're writing a story or, or whatever it is that, that you might be doing. Um, you know, previously, I think I've, I've I've made the mistake of coming at HR with the idea that that giving people lots of freedom. Um, is the best way to help them and that um, allowing them to, um, you know, allowing mistakes to be made and, uh, you know, allowing them free reign to make decisions is something that will empower them. Um, and I think over the years I've learned that while elements of that might be true, uh, what really helps people is, is the support. And sometimes that support means taking decisions out of their hands making those decisions because they should be made at a leadership level uh, and then giving them giving them the leeway to to understand that if they make mistakes that uh that that's okay but that it's my job to put the supports around so that they don't make the mistakes um and you know part of that is just from you know coming at at it having not made the mistakes myself not being able to um, to sort of cut them off at the past, but I think you know the, the older you get, the more experiences that you get in managing people and in building a culture, the more that you see the red flags when they when they come up. And I think you know out of you know the twenty two odd years that that or twenty years or whatever that I've had staff, um, I think right now things have never felt better in terms of me coming to work. I love coming to work. I love the people I'm working with. Um, but, you know, giving myself the leeway as a leader to not feel guilty when I'm spending time chatting to people, figuring out where they're at and, you know, carving out time in my day, you know, the majority of my day, to be frank, to worry about supporting other people as opposed to ignoring that because I'm too busy. 
um, that's probably the the main um, the main thing that's that's different and and realizing you know we've, that that the relationships that people have at work uh, they can be personal relationships but but they're not necessarily and and understanding that you don't need to be each other's best friends to have amazing work uh, relationships and you know the the more that we've been able to focus on that um, the the happier people have become. Um, and you know the other thing in, in on on that is is probably understanding that that people are humans outside of work as well and and this idea that you know you, you don't worry leave all of your problems at the door because you're at work now um, yeah that doesn't work either you've got to be able to roll with the punches and understand that um, you know that humans need to be humans um, and and part of that is is about you know, being understanding, but also holding them accountable and making sure that, um, you know, I think people actually don't mind being told when something needs to change. It's when you're a bit bashful and you don't do that and you let it go too far. That's when you're actually being cruel. Yeah. And to the final question that I always finish this podcast with, and and I think to some extent you've probably touched on it already, it it is, you know, the namesake of the podcast and and what is your silver bullet for for getting to where you've got to so far in your career and in business. And, and, you know, just to preface, it doesn't even necessarily need to be something that's work-related. People have come on and said it's going for a surf every morning. I believe that's what's made me successful or, or a mindset or philosophy. But if you had to put it down to, to something or, or, or a couple of things that you, I guess you've held with you throughout, what, what would you say they'd be? I think it probably is that we're a music company. And I think, whenever there's a big decision to be made or a strategic direction to be going in, I come back to that, to that thought, you know, I'm I'm not starting, I want to be running this business in whatever way, shape or form it is in 10 years time. I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to create something so that I can sell it and go and buy Bitcoin. I'm not trying to create uh, you know, I would love to exit. I would love to sell the business at some point. I would love to do, you know, whatever whatever the, the, the future holds, all of those things are exciting. But at the end of the day, whatever I do after that will probably still be a version of this anyway because I will be working in music until probably the day that I kick the bucket. And that kind of makes decisions a little bit easier where, you know, it, it might be better for the PL, it might be better for, um, you know, for, for if we were setting up for a sale or, or whatever. But by taking the, the idea that, um, that we're doing whatever's best for people's connection to music, I think it just builds the business stronger and stronger and stronger. And, and gives us a foundation where, you know, we can be a media outlet, we can do PR, we can do, you know, we, we, we may well do concert promotion, we could do any of these things. But if we hold true to what it is that the business is trying to do at its heart, then none of, we, we can make mistakes, but none of the decisions that we make can be wrong if they're coming from that place. 
Yeah, that's really good advice for anyone listening on sort of staying true to your mission. Anyway, Stephen Green, CEO of SGC Media Group. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks. Thanks.